My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me there is Chris McIntosh, Capitalist Exploits. He's going to be talking about all of his exploits as an asset manager. Chris, introduce yourself to the audience and to me. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? Thanks, Michael. Appreciate you bringing me on. Well, welcome, everyone. It's good to be here. Talk about fun things that are happening in the world. A little bit about me. I run, together with a business partner, an asset management company called Glenorchy Capital, which is focused predominantly on macro macro markets. And it's an approach where we utilize deep value investing combined with trying as best as we can to understand the macro environment. And where those two uh, intersect is where we get comfortable and build a portfolio around that. I write a newsletter which is based on what we are doing with clients and our own capital. That's how it all began. And that is at Capitalist Exploits. And it's called Insider Program. And that's basically it. My background is varied. I, I have worked originally in investment banking for a, only a few years, really, where I soon came to the realization that I was not a particularly good candidate for the corporate world. And so left to start my own thing. And that was always, it's always been predominantly in the uh, investment space. So I got into real estate and built a real estate trading and and asset management business, which then flogged in 2006 when things looked completely bonkers and I couldn't really figure out why I couldn't find any deals. It turned out to be a relatively good move. And subsequent to that, when we watched, when I when we all thought that that was the end in 2008, when I say we, many any professionals in the finance space looked at the debt scenarios, looked at the kind of shenanigans that have been going on for for well over a decade, and and many of us actually thought that that was probably the end of of the debt cycle. And and when probably twelve to fourteen months into it, I realised no, it wasn't, and I then subsequently believed that the they were going to kick the can down the road. Not only were they going to kick the can down the road, but they were going to do it to a level that was previously unimaginable. That then led me into venture capital, predominantly because you, the only way they could do that was to keep lowering interest rates. And if you keep lowering interest rates, your asset allocations across the board are affected accordingly. In particular, for example, if you were or had been a pension fund, you have particular mandates that are set. And as a, and, and typically you have to have a certain amount of capital that's in bonds, for example. And you realize then that your bond yields were, or your returns on your bond port, portfolio is going to be disastrous because it's going to keep lowering interest rates. So it's pretty hard for you to actually get any actual yield. Now you could be making money on the bonds as they appreciate in value. But for many pensions, they're actually looking for the yield component. And so when you can't meet those yields, you have to then start readjusting the rest of your portfolio, which is, shall we say, outside of that mandate. And that basically meant that capital had to go further down the risk curve. And so I sat there thinking, shit, what do I do um, in this lunatic world? And, and I believe that we were just going to have a flood of capital going into completely stupid things, basically, that were the furthest end of the risk curve. and. And so in that space, I figured it was basically only venture capital and, and then I, and even angel investing. So built a firm doing that. And wow, that was a good fun, right? It, um, it got, I still remember Michael doing 
seed stage investments where you have companies with sort of market caps of five million bucks. And within oh, six years, you would have the same type of company that was sporting 20, 30 million market cap on seed stage investment. And bear in mind when you get into those things, most of them turn to garbage. They don't, they don't turn out, which is, which is what you accommodate for as a, as a portfolio manager in that space. And you realize 80% of these things are going to go away. But what you're banking on is that the 10, 20% that work out, you'll get some 100 baggers, right? But in order to get a 100 bagger, you need to have a company that is sufficiently cheaply valued and then can, can become a... You, you buy a company that's far low and then maybe after three, four stages of financing, it goes public and it can be a $100 million company. That's fine. But if you're starting at 20, then is it really going to become a billion-dollar company? So... It was just, it was fascinating watching that entire debt cycle from the inside of the venture capital world. And it came sort of 2016 and I thought, this is not something to get out. So we did. And then I set up the firm that we, that we were managing now. And I was too early by a couple of years. I still remember doing deals where SoftBank were often running into the deal and we were just following them in as was, as was everybody else. Then it was only just because you knew. It wasn't because you thought the company was great or anything like that. You're often just of the understanding that that capital flows were going to bail you out because the insanity was going to continue. But that that got too frightening, basically. And and um, and we'll remember things like WeWork, right? Anyway, so that that was that. Today, we've been running the the portfolio, a couple of portfolios. Dedicated, like I said, to trying to understand this crazy world that we're in and, and then out and then accordingly. There's a few directions I want to take this. First of all, just going back to the point about deep value investing. When you said that, my mind immediately went to NVIDIA. No. The, uh, what's, the, what's the difference between deep value investing and distressed investing? I, I know there are obviously some clear distinctions there, but it seems that if you're going to be a real deep value investor, you want to see a dislocation because it's in those dislocations where you get some real bargains. I guess there's a, there's there's definitely overlap between distressed investing. Like so, okay, deep value is, is more your Benjamin Graham stuff, right? So you want to have firstly, you're going to be looking at companies that actually make money. Okay, so think of the dot coms. Like there was no almost no deep value there because none of them were particularly profitable. In general, I'm speaking generally, so, you know, nobody come and hate on me because they're like, oh, this company actually made money. And yeah, okay, fine. So they're profitable for starters, and then they're cheap by the um, number of metrics could be your CAPE ratios, PE ratios, da, da, da. So that's your basic deep value. Distressed investing doesn't necessarily have to have cash flow. So you could buy a distressed asset, which might, like think of, an, I don't know, an apartment building, which um, has some problems with it. I've got some, some really great friends in the, in the real estate space. And I'm just like thinking about it now. One in particular who bought a building that had compliance issues. And as a consequence, it basically they had to vacate the entire building. So you had this massive building, probably worth about 80 million bucks. And then it was, but it was, it had no cash flows. So solving the compliance issues and some infrastructure issues and all that resulted in it then being able to become, I guess, what you could say a deep value type investment because you could fill it and you could get your cash flows and you could figure out your values. But they're not, so they're not necessarily the same things. 
but that can and often do overlap. And certainly when I think about our portfolio, we, we have definite overlap. We are very, very long in the energy space, have been for three, four years now. And like if I think about coal, which I've talked about a heap on podcasts and everything else, and almost probably at risk of people thinking me as the thinking of me as the coal guy. You can still, even though we're up four or five times on many of our coal positions, you you still are looking at companies with well, three times selling for like three, four times cash flow, whereby they've got no or little debt, they're buying back stock and they some of these companies can buy back just with free cash flow, they can buy back the entire free float within 24 to 36 months. And so that's like ridiculous deep value. While at the same time, you could put it into the distressed bucket space in that nobody wants to touch coal because we've all gone woke and decided that it's better to focus on pronouns. And so you've got Wall Street that's too spineless to go after things that actually make sense. And that's, that's a wonderful opportunity for people like myself. So you could fall, you could throw that sort of into the distressed asset space. So you could, certainly you could throw things like across the energy space. If you go from the 2014 ish highs through to 18, 17, 18, think of uranium. Like I think it was about. 80 to 90% of the companies that existed in the, in the previous uranium bull market went away. And so then you're just left with those that are the stragglers at the end who now actually own 100% of the market share in that particular space. So do you look at that as distressed assets? You could do. If, if they simultaneously are profitable, then they definitely are deep value and, they, and then the two can coincide. We have done and sometimes will purchase companies that aren't specifically necessarily deep value. We've done that. We did that quite a lot with tankers, but we could see that the markets were inflecting and we could see that you're not looking at existing cash flows. You're looking at order books and you're looking at what's coming down the, down the tube. And so you're forward looking, you're going, well, this thing, it's going to become profitable. The markets are now thinking that it's going bankrupt and, and the market's wrong or we perceive the market to be wrong. And so you could say, well, that's distressed asset investing while it doesn't, it couldn't be justified as necessarily being deep value. But then 12, 18 months later, it's like people are going, well, there's a deep value investment because look at the cash flows and look at the valuations and so on and so forth. So there is other. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm trying to get at for the audience. Okay. So, so I want to dig deeper into the energy thesis you have. Yet message be saying, global bifurcation that's taking place. Energy was a rock star last year, not so much this year. You can argue that's just classic mean aversion, right? He was first to be his last and last first right dynamic when it comes to sector performance. But lay out the the argument from a longer term perspective because narrative always follows price and the only narrative that seems to matter now is AI, AI, AI. But the energy needs of the globe haven't changed. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. 
Yeah, it's funny. Despite all of this nonsense talk about renewables, <clears throat> from 2000, because I was looking at this COP28 nonsense, right? Where from in 2009 at the, um, at the same shindig that they hold, they were talking about this renewables uh, revolution that was taking place. Since then, the growth in energy, so this is 2009 through to now, to 2023. Since then, 80% of the global energy increase has been in fossil fuels. So, and, that, and this is when they were telling us that the, that the revolutions here are all going this way, et cetera, et cetera. So that despite the narrative push that just continues unabated, the, the facts simply do not back it up. And so it was very interesting to watch at the recent COP28, the, uh, <laughs> the, the chairman coming out and basically poo-pooing the entire green bubble. And of course, Al Gore responding to this all with, with hysteria around we're all going to die and we really have to get on board of this. This is the same Al Gore, of course, who told us that the polar caps were going to melt by 2015. And there's actually more ice on them now than there was when he said that. But anyways, so you have this back to the, the bifurcation. What we're watching is this significant split between the Western-dominated, financialized world and the, shall we say, Eastern or Global South, um, largely production, commodity-dominated world, less financialized. And so that's on a global space. That's what's taking place now. In fact, it was funny to actually watch the COP28 transpiring and this clear, it was, it was by all definitions was a shit show. And, and that's, now that's being reported. It's not like they're actually coming out of this saying, Hey, we're doing good things and so on and so forth. They're all lamenting that the world's not doing us as, as, as they told, as they, as they should. And we're all going to die. Of course, they all flew in there on their own private jets to, to tell us that we shouldn't be taking as many showers as we do. But. It's, it's clearly come up against a brick wall of reality. And only two days after that, I watched the, I watched Putin arrive to an absolutely amazing, um, welcoming from Saudi Arabia. And then he's on to UAE. It was, it was from a, from a show point. It was very, very clear that we've got Ropec. You have this alliance of what is actually the Makinda heartland. I don't know if um, people are familiar with the terminology. It was something that was developed by a British uh, cartographer, um, Health of Makinda, anyways. And it talks of the, the global, sorry, the heartland, which is essentially Middle East and, and Europe, which has always been fought over. And the, basically the concept behind it is that whoever controls the heartland controls the world. So people can read up on that or I can talk all about it now. But this is very important. It's why the control of the Middle East has always been so important for Western powers or any powers in our present time, Western powers, with the concept that if you can't control and own it, you make sure that nobody else can. And so that's been at the heart of US foreign policy for all of our lives. And that's now under massive threat, a massive attack. And so we're watching this play out. And at the heart of it is energy. At the heart of it is, is energy. 
And this is at a time when we've had lack of capital expenditure. We should have had a a CapEx pickup in sort of 2016, and it just never happened. And we still have not had it in any significant shape or form. And that's across the space. It's oil and gas, it's coal, it's nuclear, it's everything. That's, That's extending and has extended the commodity cycle. Um, which is always cyclical, right? It takes a long time to get a coal mine or a oil rig on, on, on stream. If you're talking years, it doesn't, it's not like you just turn on the tap and go, okay, let's go. So those dynamics are more extreme and more, um, they're, they're like a coiled spring effectively. And so at the same time, then you've also got the financial side, which comes into it, which is the utilization of the dollar for oil and all these sorts of things. So there's, there's a whole lot of stuff we can talk about, but China and Saudi's recent $7 billion swap deal looks to me like the, like the Saudis are preparing themselves for <clears throat> the inevitable, what would be sanctions? I think we're probably going to see sanctions coming through. Um, in, I don't know, 12 months against, against the Saudis, because they pretty much have come out and said no in many respects to war to the US. And so it's interesting that when Putin arrived in Saudi, he brought with him, um, the head of the Russian central bank, Elvira, um, Nabu, Nabulyani, I'm probably mispronouncing her name, but, um, and I think the reason behind that is if you look at what Russia's, the reason that Russia has managed to come out of the, what is the heaviest sanctions pretty much any country's experienced, maybe since Iran, the reason that they've come out flying ahead with increasing GDP, low inflation rates and everything else is because they began massively de-dollarizing their entire economy back in sort of 2015. And they know how to do it. And I think in large part, that's where, why they're meeting with the Saudis saying, look, guys, this is what we did. This is how it's done. And we can walk through the mechanisms of that, but it's, but it's essentially Chinese, um, who have a shit ton of US USD, lending them USD with the ability to convert it back into yuan. And they're actually doing this at scale across the global south. I wrote about it recently in a newsletter. Um, and there's a, so there's a clear geopolitical play taking place and, and a lot of it is all around commodities, um, energy in particular. And so all of this, you look at all these things taking place and you say, oh, well, that's all fine and maybe interesting to weirdos like myself, but how do you position? What do you position for? How do you asset allocate? You know, what's your weighting in particular sectors? And how do you weight not only into a sector, but also geographically, right? For example, we've shied away from anything as silly as investing in a coal company in Germany when they were destroying an energy infrastructure. But at the same time, we're quite happy to go and buy coal companies in Indonesia or in Namibia or something like that. So there's a lot to think of and, and take into account when building, building out um, a strategy. That CapEx cycle, for it to really kick in, presumably you've got to have, you know, higher for longer, not on rates, but on oil, right? You've got to have just kind of a belief that that you need to actually fund these projects from a longer term perspective. I, I think the you could correct me if I'm wrong with this, I think the, the problem is the perception is that oil spikes and then comes right back down. And yeah, we're seeing it this year too, right? Oil has not formed, I think, as well as people 
hoped it would, especially with what's going on with Israel and, and Hamas. What needed to really kickstart a broader CapEx cycle if it wasn't, if last year was not enough to do that? So that's a great question. There's a couple of, there's a couple of factors. You, you're, you're right. The first thing for people to really understand is that this is not just capital intensive as an industry. This is incredibly capital intensive. If we take offshore as an example, to put a rig in the water today, which by the way, you can't do because the, the shipyards don't have the, the shipyards are not building pretty much anything. A, because they got slaughtered in the last downturn and some of them actually went bankrupt as a consequence of having contracts out to, to oil and gas firms who then defaulted. The shipyard capacity is massively down. Secondly, the financing of this stuff is always debt finance. It's never equity, right? Why? Because a, a rig's going to cost you at least 1.2 billion. Every rig has about has four OSVs to service it. An OSV is going to cost you in the order of about 80. So you're, t- you're talking serious capital, okay? If you're going to deploy that kind of capital, you need to have surety of return, which is also longevity of time, right? Because you're not going to pay it back. You're not going to pay it back $3 billion in in 12 months, right? This is a, this is a long term 30 plus year investment that you need to make. In order to make that, you need to have political security. You need to know that you don't go out and build this thing in the, in the Gulf of Mexico only to have the Biden administration turn around and cancel your, your leases. Okay. So you, you need to have all these levels of surety. Secondly, on the finance side of things, A, you need to have non-woke money managers in, in Wall Street, which by the way, we don't have, that would finance it. Secondly, you also need to have surety in terms of the, the, the interest rate cycle. So you can imagine if you're going to finance something on maybe, maybe you're going to fix it for five years and roll it. You, you need to have some view of what the interest rates are going to be for the longevity of your asset. And that's without even considering the actual price of the underlying spot, spot spot of, say, oil or gas or whatever it is that you're doing. doesn't The same is going to apply whether you're building a coal, com- coal mining um, company or, or anything. So all of these factors, if you actually take them and break them down piece by piece, all of them are under incredible pressure on the negative side. Okay, There's, it's, it's difficult for people to, at this inflection point of the end of the bond cycle, which we believe basically tapped out at the end of 2016 and then we had the 2020 spike, which is just an anomaly. But certainly in the, in the long-term cycle, our belief is that bonds are finished. Yes, we're going to have rallies up during the course of this, but essentially that trend is over and it's moving in the other, the other direction, which is bonds down, yields up. So that's that dynamic. Then again, if you look at the political stability in certain jurisdictions to actually go out and deploy capital for a long time frame, that's definitely not what it used to look like 10, 15 years ago. That then causes investors, businesses to hold back on capital expenditure. And what we're going to see, and this is, I talked about this three years ago, was that we were going to begin to see M&A, which is really just existing companies saying, my shareholder base doesn't have the risk profile. My management doesn't really have the risk profile for us to go out and do quote-unquote risky things, maybe drilling for something. We'll just pick up competitors. So now we're seeing this taking place, for example, in the shale space. But what's important to, 
to understand behind that dynamic is that there is no additional supply being brought to the market. All that we're seeing is a consolidation of existing assets. But that is what happens at the bottom. Look, you get M&I at, at two points in a cycle, at the top and at the bottom. And we're at the bottom of that cycle. We're getting that M&A now coming through. So, so it's, 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 it's a fantastic, I, I love the setup just because nothing that I'm watching is bringing additional supply to the markets, almost nothing. And yet we have all these pressures. We have got the, 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 the bonds, um, which have to, have to weaken. That means more inflation. That in itself brings about uncertainty. If you take any inflationary period, the single best asset class to own in an inflation period is energy. People talk about gold and that. No, gold comes way down. In fact, it comes even after things like copper. In if you can, you track this, and so it's it's. I love it. It's it's a fantastic setup with a, with a lot of asymmetry because your downside is is fairly limited. And then, of course, we haven't even talked about the geopolitical tensions that are taking place globally, which, which is, you, I've said this a million times before, you cannot have any political security without energy security. And, and Europe's waking up to this fact because they now are completely beholden to, to, to the West, um, which is helping deindustrialize much of Europe. Because the cost of the cost of the energy that they're bringing in now is anywhere from three to four times what they're bringing in from cheap Russian oil and gas. Uh, and you could say, well, they were beholden to the Russians. Fine. But they still had the other options. They could still go and get US oil. They could still go and get other, um, they could still truck in or, or ship in coal, which is what they've been doing now, except it's just costing them much more and it's destroying their, their competitive advantages. So we're going through a significant change globally and energy is going to be fought over and challenged and so i think it's it's hard to it's hard not to have some position waiting in energy in general and and and, and like we can talk about the different forms of that be nuclear or it can be oil and gas and even in the oil and gas space is is do you go for producers do you go for offshore do you go for even seismic operators there's, there's a whole range of fancy, funny stuff that you can do there, which is pretty exciting. Well, would you actually, I wanted to get to that direct because I think that there are going to be some parts of this from a value chain or whatever you want to call it perspective that will be more attractive than others, more undervalued, deep value on a relative basis. But before we get into that, everybody, please make sure you follow Chris McIntosh here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left micro request button. And again, as always, this will be an edited podcast under Lead Lag Live. All right, so let's get into the different parts of the energy sector, the different sub-sectors or industries within energy, which are more attractive than others now? We've been... We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Pretty heavily weighted towards offshore. Well, the, intellig- the, the, the first thing I want to point out is this. The entire space is awesome. 
but there's, there's some awesomeness that's a little bit more awesome than the other. And so in the offshore space on a valuation basis, that is very, very interesting to us. And you've got to remember that in terms of global energy, global oil supply, still 30% of that comes from offshore. And there's been no capital investment in that space. The huge amount of the operators that were involved in that in the last cycle have gone away. They've all been through, like there's almost no companies that didn't go through BK. And so you've got, you get, you get the setup where you have complete restructuring of very, very capital intensive businesses. It is extraordinary to find a setup where you can buy multi-billion dollar assets for a few hundred million dollars. And the only times that you get that opportunity is after the debt has been wiped out and converted into equity. And that's essentially where we've been since 18, 19 through till today. So, so that dynamic is, is extraordinary. And any, any investor that looks at trends and looks at market cycles would recognize that as being an opportune time to at least get some weighting into, in, into a sector. So again, within the oil space, the offshore has been easily the most most hated or the most damaged, if you will. And so as a consequence, the valuations are, are very, very attractive to us. So that's in that kind of value chain, that's been very interesting. The other thing that I'll just throw out there, and we, we mention these fairly regularly in our newsletter, we have what's called the big five, and we just throw together interesting ideas in that. But you've got things, for example, like seismic operators, mapping of the seafloor, like all these things that people don't really think about when you're thinking about, say, oil and gas. And at the peak of cycles, these these operators can make an absolute fortune. And again, massive consolidation in that space. Almost no operators left. And those that are there um, now own 100% of the market share. Um, no one even, like, there are entire desks like Wall Street, which have just been shut in the energy space, list them all. But so there's like, there's no one covering this stuff, or there's very few people covering this stuff. So there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of value. Like we, we talk about this in newsletter we put out and we make it clear to people like we don't necessarily own all of these, largely just because we can't. Like there's just too much value available. So within the funds that we manage, <laughs> at some point you're like, okay, I can't, can't take anymore. Kind of pick. But I think is the best sort of robust portfolio for us. But you look around and you find other other companies. You think, damn, that's 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 great too. But like, where would I fit it in, and what would I get rid of in order to fit it in? And you, you can't necessarily do it. But the point I'm making is that there's a huge amount of opportunity, and there's very very few people looking at it. The the other point I want to make about this, and this kind of goes back to the macro environment. For the last 20 years, we've had an addition, we've had an increasing amount of capital that has been going into the quote unquote passive capital, right? So it's indexing essentially, right? Within that space, I think I've never seen such extreme positioning. And I think it's very dangerous. I think it's, I think it's worth people understanding what they're actually buying into when they're buying into, say, an index fund. If you, if you just kind of, and, and again, this comes back to the energy space because the energy, like as a percentage of the S&P, for example, energy is absolutely fractional. But now if we think about indexing, US on a global space, US is, is about 62% of global market, right? which is, so if you're buying into an index, 
being, if you bought into like a global index, you're going to basically, 62% of that's going to go into the US. Of that, 62%, 30% of that is actually just going into seven stocks. That's what's happening now. It's massive, massive concentration. I saw a survey, Michael, I think it was JPM put it out. I can't, I can't remember. Was it one of these um, global fund managers surveys? 70% of global fund managers have their money in just 10 stocks. So like you have this extraordinary concentration on the one end. And then at the same time, again, because it doesn't make up anything in the index, energy is just not even, not even accounted for. So I don't really know what happens in the next 6, 12 months, and I don't really care. I know what the trends are. The trends are that bonds are toast. Um, pensions are going to get hammered. And, um, and at the same time, positioning in bonds right now is some of the most extreme that I've, that I've seen. JPM just put out a survey, I think it was, with their treasury clients, and it's the most extreme that we've had in, in 20 years. The consensus for declining bond yields and a soft landing is, is over 70%. So I don't know necessarily if they're wrong, but what I do know is that when, when everybody's thinking one way, typically nobody's thinking, um, and I've, I struggle to believe that, that the probability matches that positioning. In other words, if 70% of treasury clients believe that we're going to have declining rates, is there a 70% probability that we will? No, I don't think that's accurate. I think there's a mismatch there in that. So, so, and, and the reason I talk about bonds, for example, is just this is massive global liquidity and it has to go somewhere if things don't work out exactly as the market is currently anticipating. And so if you're getting come back to the, that percentage of energy, for example, within, within the S&P or within, with, or within any index, it's, it's, it doesn't take a whole lot to move it. Right? So we, we look for asymmetry. We look for where the risk in something is relatively low and where, where the upside is relatively high. And then we try and do that across multiple sectors and build out a portfolio accordingly. I, I will say that point about the, the top seven stocks, the 70% in just the select number of names, the idiosyncratic risk that everybody is taking, thinking they're in a diversified portfolio. It has other implications from a signaling perspective, right? You can't really have, I think it's even released to the CapEx discussion, you can't really have sustained flow into CapEx for energy unless the market is also telling you that you need it. And if the market is being driven by just a select number of stocks because of market cap weighted averages, automatic buying into those market cap weighted averages, that has longer term implications because the signaling is distorted. Only, only. And the other thing, of course, is liquidity. So you've had such an increase. It's almost like as the indexes and as the passive capital has gotten larger and larger, um, it, it presents a problem. Okay. So as an example, let's say you and I were running some uh, algo with a passive capital and we've got, I don't know, 10 billion under management and we want to take a 1% position size in energy. We're screwed. Like, what are we going to buy? <laughs> That's it. It's difficult. And, and so the, the, the amount of active fund managers have been declining for the last 20 years. And there was literally no ability for these large, large pools of capital to go into something, even if it makes sense, even where the price is indicative that you should. 
um, just because the actual liquidity pool is insufficiently large. Um, and and that, that I think represents an opportunity. If you go back to what, like say, let's just say last three years, what's done well? well commodities have done well. Right? Have we seen additional pickup in CapEx? No. Why not? In large part, it's because the structure of that financialized market is such that the pools of capital are in, they're in, they're, they're, they're not in a position to take illiquid, take on illiquid investments. And remember, a lot of these things are also immediate redemption. So you've got to have a certain amount of liquidity. I think it's a good question. And if I'm just going to, I'm just going to not rephrase it, but I think your question really comes down to what does the volatility look like? And my answer to that is, and I've been saying this to, to clients and subscribers, is embrace the chaos. We're going to have extraordinary volatility. It's inevitable. It's inevitable on a, on a macro basis. Anytime you go into war, and I think for anyone who's been paying any level of attention, we are um, globally at war whether you want to acknowledge that or not, we are in a war cycle. And those are never low volatility periods because there's the level of uncertainty. They are simultaneously typically stagflationary environments, which is what we fundamentally believe we are both in and will continue to experience. And by stagflation, I basically mean shitty economy with rising costs of the goods and services that you need. And so this inflation cycle isn't going to come about as a consequence of demand-led growth, which is what we have experienced in most of our lives, which is why so many analysts are looking at it going, no, we can't have demand, it's going to be deflation, because look, this weak economy, da-da-da-da-da. That is true if you're looking at things purely from the demand side. We are supply-constrained at the same time that we have geopolitical tensions. It's worth remembering that the 70s, Yom Kippur War and subsequent um, Arab oil embargo had nothing to do with supply. There was massive supply, but it was a geopolitical tension which brought about a reduction in um, the transportation of oil and hence the bull market in oil. We have that scenario sitting in front of us today, except that we don't have the supply that they had back in the 70s. That's just to point out that we can and are likely to have extraordinary volatility, including, as I just mentioned, many of the certain asset classes are very low in terms of liquidity. Many of the oil and gas companies trade for a few hundred million dollars. Some of them only a, a couple of billion dollars, which is very, very small market caps. When you think about the capex cycle, when you think about the assets that you're purchasing, and so that's, I see that as being a huge opportunity. I think one needs to develop a strategy to deal with that. Our strategy, which we've talked to clients about and put forward as how we're going to deal with it, is to embrace that volatility, to position size yourself such that you're not overly positioned in any one sector so that you wake up at o'clock in the morning to try and have a look at your portfolio because you're worried about it. <clears throat> so as a rule of thumb, you might have, say, 10% position weighting into a sector and then break your position weighting down all the way into maybe 1% position sizing on each and, in, in, and every individual equity. In that environment, you can sleep better 
you can handle volatility better because you're going to get it. In that environment, I can see an equity drop 50% and not give a shit about it and then run through the cycle because that is the best way to actually, in my opinion, handle the volatility that is inevitable because the alternative is that you get whipsawed and unless you're a very adept trader and most people are not, especially those who think they are, unless you're that guy, you will land up getting in and out, getting whipsawed, not only having incredible stress in your life, but probably having an underperforming portfolio. Chris, maybe for the remaining few minutes since you mentioned uranium and you alluded to the idea of you only have so much capital to put to work so you could be a kid in a candy store, but you still got to figure out how much sugar you're going to take home. How do you think about uranium in the context of the oil and gas space? Is there is there a case we made that uranium would have bigger upside potential? And if that's the case, how do you think about weighting? Yeah, uranium has been an interesting one for us. We got in certainly too early. And, and I'll, I'll mention this because it was, um, it just, even if you're a professional, you still mess things up. So we got into uranium at the end of 16. And so you buy assets that are, that, that make sense from an asymmetrical standpoint. And then you just position size. Like I often like to get a position into something because when I've got a position in, I pay more attention to it. It's just, it's just how the brain works. Okay. Like we sat for three and a half years and we saw nothing. Like we weren't up or down. We just had nothing. Now position weighting in that at the time was 5% across the portfolio. Okay. So 5% of your portfolio is doing nothing or even got down a bit. It's, it's, it's not, it's annoying, but you can basically hold on to things that make sense from a fundamental perspective, while you, you realize and you recognize that your timing could be off. And certainly our timing was off on that in, in terms of inflecting. Then within 18 months, we were up literally three times, five times in some positions. And I remember some clients who had actually just been fortunate enough to come in at a later stage. And they're like, wow, you guys are geniuses. I was born into this and we're up like five times in positions. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We, we, this is the one we messed up. So I guess the, the point is that you're always going to have position, you're always going to have some things that are annoying you. And so the way that I try and deal with that is to wake up every morning and, and look at something and say, would I buy that today if I didn't own it? And my answer to that then then determines whether I hold something or sell it. Because if you hold something, often, especially if it's actually done well for you, you might sit there and go, okay, I love this, but it's actually become more expensive. So if you woke up and you asked yourself the question, you said, would I buy this today if I didn't own it? And you say, well, it's a bit expensive. Then, you, then you're answering your own question and that keeps you grounded. So that's the first step. And then the, the, the second is how do you position size it? And so ideally where we see something inflicting, we'll, we'll re-weight and we might go up. So our positioning weighting went to 10% on uranium. And I think it is, it's, it's also energy is an interesting one because it's also very political. And now we're seeing the green crowd turning around and going, no, 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 uranium is actually green. When for years they were saying they hated it and it wasn't green. In fact, they've even, they've even taken wood chips and said wood chips are green, despite the fact that these are burning trees. In any event, a lot of this is political. And I think the political winds are shifting in favor of uranium. The issue with uranium isn't so much the, the supply of uranium, which there's actually a ton of uranium in 
in the world, it can, and it's relatively easy to be mined. One of the major issues with that is actually the um, enrichment process, and that is very, very concentrated. And that can, and I think likely, may be used as a weapon going forward because the Russians control a lot of that through Kazatomprom. And so we'll see what happens there. But I think it is certainly, when you think about asset classes and the geopolitical structure of the world, it is worth having some position sizing. Every individual is going to have to figure out what that looks like. And part of that equation also comes down to what are the other asset classes that are also asymmetric out there that you might want to own. So, but yeah, that's, that's, we're, we're bullish on uranium. Like I said, we're up to just under 10% position weighting in, in that. So we'll see. Uh, Chris, for those that want to track more of your thoughts and more of your work, where'd you point the So as I mentioned at the start, we have a newsletter that came out of the back of client notes that we wrote to our asset, to our hedge fund clients that can be found at capitalistexploits.at. Um, and then for anyone who's basically wealthier and, and wants their money managed, we have dnorkycapital.net. Everybody, please give a follow to Chris here. I'm going to have it at the podcast in a couple of days, and hopefully I will see you all later in the week when I do a few more of these spaces. Chris, really enjoyed listening and talking to you. I think uh, very educational for the audience, and hopefully uh, everybody here found it worthwhile. Thank you everybody for joining. Cheers. Thanks for having me. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.